1: As you said, dropping by about 3 billion barrels a day, 20% of total consumption, the largest demand shock the oil market has suffered since the global financial crisis of 2008. Why are we seeing oil prices getting a bit of a bid today? Why are they having a lift? Why are they slightly up? Because everything
2: I, was down so bad last right, week. But, but, I guess. but is
1: that really pricing it in? I mean, last week was not a bloodbath. Well, the last problem week is, was Lisa, a sell off, but it was not, let's be it was clear, not just People don't ripping. know
2: what to price in. They Correct. don't know how long this will go on for. They don't know how much worse it will get. So let's ask the economists what to do. John Riding, Bring Capital, Chief Economic Advisor, joining us around the table here in New York. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Jonathan. What do you tell clients?
3: Well,. Look, one has to try and, I think, recognize, first of all, the coronavirus, is, it, it it's like all illnesses, it's terrible, it, it it's spreading rapidly, um, but one has to put it in perspective. So what, what is it analytically? And I, I've argued that it's more a supply shock than it is a demand shock, at least for the rest of the world. We have integrated global supply chains. We had a shock to the supply chain last year uh, from tariffs and the trade wars. Um, we got that behind us and now we have a uh, supply chain shock coming out of the uh, factory staying closed, which is a Chinese decision in terms of limiting the the spread. Then, of course, the travel ban and so on. But if we go back to looking at SARS, it will no doubt be got under control. with The, the, the timeline in, in in the case of SARS from who, uh, who declaring it in a, an international emergency, I think was that March 13th, 2003, to being sounding the all clear was uh, in uh, July of 2003. Um, we don't know if it's got the same timeline. It spreads more rapidly because we've now had double cases than there were total number of SARS cases. It doesn't what? appear to be as deadly. Um.
1: But that said, a lot of people have pushed back on using SARS as an example of what to expect here, saying the Chinese economy is much more pivotal in the world. You also have the backdrop of all of these tensions. And I think it's interesting that, John, and and, and really salient that John started on the blowback that the U.S. is getting from China on the response. How much is this going to potentially rise to a political issue and cause tensions on the trade front at a time when we had, you know, had some sort of resolution?
3: Well, we've... We had phase one deal. The Phase one deal signed. Now we move on to phase two, and you know the coronavirus has created some uncomfortable mood music for those negotiations. Especially when the side of the uh, administration that has been more anti-China, more pro-tariff, uh, makes uh, comments uh, you know, that you were referring to earlier being made. But 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 that being said. Common heads provided, prevailed in the trail talks, uh, the trade talks, and I think that will, uh, you know, that will happen uh, here. Um, there will be an impact on growth in the first quarter, as I said. In the US, I think we'll primarily see it in the supply chain, not in the consequences of reduced demand for China. That that will have an impact, but the US is still a relatively closed uh, economy, and you work through the demand numbers and they're they're pretty small for the US, the disruption to supply may be more more significant. But without having a crystal ball and looking at SARS and think about this, that probably going to be, hopefully going to be, a first quarter event, uh, and then the economy does uh, John, I bounce back.
2: John, many people share that hope. The difficulty they might ha- be having at this point is that we spent much of last year with this tug of war between the consumer, this resilient consumer, this resilient services sector, and this really, really soft manufacturing sector, not just a story for the United States, but a story for much of the developed world, including China as well. And we never quite resolved the question. There were hopes that we'd come into this year and that manufacturing would start to pick up and to stabilize, but it was never quite resolved. And that an issue like this, a shock like this can derail things again. What do you say about that particular dilemma, John?
3: I think the key thing is to watch jobs because what keeps the consumer in the game is employment. And employment growth has remained robust. The signals for January is that has continued in the first quarter. Very strong readings on the labour market out of the Consumer Confidence Report. Uh, the initial jobless claims data remain extremely low. So uh, I say we, we have to watch jobs, and that's the key thing here. Um, and how important I is I the payrolls
2: report this Friday, John? How important is payrolls this Friday, given that uh, a, lot this, again. a lot of this, though, Predates a lot of this particular survey will just predate any of the stress that we see in the global economy right now. But economic
3: momentum is very important, and you know when when you you're looking at uh, the impact of something like SARS, it's like what is the what what is the momentum in the economy that's been impacted? And the jobs momentum has been strong, um, and if it remains strong, then the U.S. will. Uh, power through this Um, and and, and that's key and I think there are some signs We'll, we'll see you know we had very weak Chicago PMI reading last week on manufacturing that may have been distorted by Boeing given that Boeing's headquartered in Chicago We had a very strong reading out of the Richmond Fed manufacturing indicator, which we found to be statistically a a fairly useful indicator of manufacturing. And we will get to know this morning uh, with the uh, ISM reading later on what what the January manufacturing numbers look like. You're absolutely right. The difference between an economy that doesn't have manufacturing is a 2% growing economy, and we saw that last year, and one where capital spending comes back Uh, and manufacturing kicks in and then that becomes two and a half percent maybe better uh, economic growth but um, the construction numbers the residential numbers look good that i think that's going to continue to drive the economy uh, and i think uh, everything comes down to uh, employment growth here for a while
2: hey john great to catch up with you to get your thoughts as always john riding brink capital chief economic advisor the focus of global markets and the world on the coronavirus coming out of China. Joining us now, I'm really pleased to say, is Dr. Amish Adalja, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health Senior Scholar. Doctor, fantastic to have you with us on the program to get your brilliant insight. Let's just begin with a rather simple question that deserves, I'm sure, a complex answer. What makes this coronavirus just so difficult to contain?
4: What makes it so difficult to contain is that it is spreading between humans efficiently. That means a person can get infected and pass it on to somebody else and then maybe pass it on to somebody else. So it's spreading in the community and that makes it very hard. And it's also spread through the respiratory route, coughs and sneezes, which are much harder to really contain than something that's spread in a different manner. So there's a lot of characteristics that are kind of pushing that case count higher.
2: Doctor, the last few weeks, a lot of people have been trying to understand the so-called incubation period, the length of it and whether you're contagious during it. Do we know anything more about that now
4: we have seen some data coming from Germany <clears throat> that is really suggestive of transmission during the incubation period when someone who wasn't sick at all passed it on to somebody, somebody, and then they got ill. This is something we hadn't seen with coronaviruses, and it is something that makes control very hard because if you don't know who is, who is contagious, you can't isolate them. You can't, co- you can't do any type of social distancing to keep them away from other people. It usually doesn't cause the force of the epidemic. It's not going to spread. It's not going to be a big force in the spread of it, but it becomes very hard to completely eliminate the infection if you have these asymptomatic uh, people who are able to spread during their incubation period.
1: What's the fatality rate been like? I've heard a lot of arguments saying that the common flu is incredibly fatal and has had a much broader impact, yet it hasn't necessarily created the same sort of hysteria.
4: So the fatality rate that we're often quoting now is 2%, but that's a very skewed number because that number is derived from the cases that are being diagnosed in China, which are going to be selected from the the more sick group of people. They're not testing people that are out in the in the community who have maybe more like common cold-like symptoms, which coronaviruses can cause, versus testing people that are in the hospital with pneumonia and need to be hospitalized. So you're getting what's called a severity bias. So that 2% we expect to come down as more and more people who have mild symptoms are tested. And as you've seen, the rate has been coming down as we get the case counts higher. And there have been there's only been one death outside of China. So, so that really uh, argues that this is going to be less severe in terms of fatality, much less severe than SARS, for example.
1: Dr. Daljo, do you think that the reaction that we've seen in terms of stopping flights and just in general recommending people don't go to China has been an overreaction based on what you just said?
4: It's one thing to have travel advisories for individuals that are going to China so that they are aware of what the risks may be and what protective actions to take. But it's quite another to basically enact a travel ban against China and people coming from from China. That, I think, is not warranted. And we've learned that from many outbreaks that those travel bans do not work. They they, they divert precious public health resources to enforcing a travel ban and and really looking at travelers versus actually ramping up our health system to be able to deal with these cases when they do occur in the United States. And it ends up making things worse in China because it creates economic damage, it creates stigmatization, it makes it logistically harder to get resources into that area. And uh, it will not really have a measurable impact on on a respiratory disease that's spreading this well in the community and over in almost two dozen countries, I think that we have to prepare for the eventuality that this will come to the United States and we will have an outbreak of it here. And it may not be very severe, but it can be very disruptive to our health system, which runs basically at capacity every day.
2: Doctor, this is a take that I think a lot of people outside of the medical world struggle with. They look at the quarantine measures within China, massive cities effectively being shut down and ask themselves, Mm -hmm. well, okay, if they've got quarantine measures, why wouldn't we shut down our borders to the epicenter of where this disease where this virus has come from and and doctor just from someone from outside the medical world that's kind of the response to what you've just said what do you say back to that
4: well first of all i would say that china's quarantining of 50 million people was also unwarranted that made conditions much worse in wuhan with shortages with with shortages of food medical bed shortages physician shortages had people fled that area lots of mistrust of public health authorities so that that on the what china did was also wrong as well but the point what i'm trying to make is that this had probably been spreading for some time in china before it was noticed at least in november it was spreading and there were many many travelers leaving wuhan and remember that the spectrum of illness that this that that coronavirus causes includes things like the common cold very mild type of symptoms in, in many patients i suspect that there are more cases in the world that have not been diagnosed because they recovered or they were very mild or mixed in with flu and not diagnosed because we are very poor at diagnosing viral infections. So it's likely that this is already spread and is not completely containable. And what we well, want to do now, while we have time, is actually prepare our hospitals, make sure our supply chains are good, make sure that uh, that diagnostic testing is scaled up, because this this is really going to come here inevitably.
1: Yeah. Doctor- and we
4: want to blunt the impact of it. And if you spend a lot of time focusing on travelers and, and quarantines and travel bans, you're really diverting precious resources. And in the end, it may not, it's not going to make much of a difference because this is a respiratory virus that has some spread during its asymptomatic period, so it becomes very hard to contain. And travel bans did not work during H1N1. They did not work during Ebola. They did not work during HIV. They, they do not work, and they actually make things much harder even though politicians love to run for them when, when any time of outbreak occurs.
2: Doctor, appreciate your point of view this morning. That's Dr. Amish Adalja joining us from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, a senior scholar there. We should, of course, point out that Michael R. Bloomberg is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News.
0: John, you know, Miranda Carr is like a few of the people we have. It's like authentic knowledge on China, not the distance thing. I feel like incredibly... Live and breathe, it. Yeah. I mean, I feel so distant. I go to... I've been to China. I've been literally like in Hong Kong. I'm in like three quarters of a
2: mile. You go to China and then you stay in the hotel.
0: Yeah, I mean, clear. it's a complete bogus statement to say I've been to China. It's just that's not true. Well, I spoke Shanghai. We can bring, Shanghai, in, we can bring in
2: Miranda Carr right now, yeah. Hightong security Senior Analyst. Miranda, talk to us about the damage being done to the economy at the moment.
5: Well, you've got basically got two elements to it. I mean, the first is the consumption hit. So spring festival, um, the consumption, no one was going out, no one was spending, going out and seeing people. So you've had that sort of short term um, economic hit. But the longer term economic hit could be the one where we're seeing now, where instead of going back to work and production starting to kick off, where you want the spring festival, sort of post spring festival bounce, where everyone's you know, having a key eye on new export orders and production levels that's not starting now um, and so this is where sort of a lot of the sort of industrials um, and the, you know, the private sector manufacturing may see a bigger hit than what we saw as a consumption hit over the uh, spring festival shutdown.
2: Miranda we had a guest on the program in the last hour that said he's much more worried about the supply chain hit than the demand side hit. Does that resonate with you? Yes. Yeah.
5: Well, yeah, I mean, because with the demand side, you can get, I mean, not, you know, if people didn't spend money over Spring Festival, they can, basically, they've still got it in their pockets, they can go out and When the virus passes, that consumption rebound can happen. But the trouble is going to be in areas where, you know, they were already under pressure for the trade war and the supply chain sort of, you know, shifting around into other, area, other countries um, and other areas of, um, of the world. Now, if they're not getting their sort of export rebound, they're already suffering cash flow problems, and then you have a production shift shutdown, um, then that means you're going to have a lot of the sort of SME sector going to be struggling um, with both cash flows and orders as we come into Q2, um, and that will then depend, you know, depends how long the virus then hits. Um, if it continues on to Q2, then, then, then that could be a real struggle.
1: Miranda, there's been some speculation that the PBOC, that, that, that Beijing, will inject a significant amount of additional stimulus to offset any potential economic shock here. How much ammunition do they have to completely cushion the blow here?
5: Well, interestingly, so they've actually got, um, because they didn't go sort of full pelt. In the stimulus for um, on the trade war, they still have a little bit of ammunition left. I mean, if you think of infrastructure, last year was only four um, percent year-on-year growth. So they've still got, they can still bring forward a lot of the local government spending, local government bond issuance, um, and get that spending. But again, it does come down to when the virus starts peaking and construction, can... because you know you can't put infrastructure in place um, if people aren't able to move around. So it really needs, you really need the virus to start sort of peaking and then um, movement to start going again. And then once you get into Q2, Q3, then you're likely to see a bit, much, much bigger stimulus um, package than you saw, particularly yeah, monetary policy easing, but also more infrastructure investment plans.
2: Miranda, the constructive view on all of this is that we get some kind of V-shaped, Recovery. It's an inflection point that you have in mind that we go beyond. That the longer this goes on for, the more you doubt that we will get that sharp V shaped recovery out of the Chinese economy.
5: Well, the official projections at the moment are for the, for to the peak in 17th of February, I and mean, it's an incredibly precise date. Um, if it if it peaks then and then starts declining, then then we're basically we're going to see sort of Q2 Q2 rebound. The risk is obviously you know you know even this time last week, saying it was going to be over 17,000 um, in, in infected cases, no one was imagining that. So therefore, there's, it's the uncertainty about when that peak is going to happen, which is the, which is a big problem. And all the associated shutdowns with trying to prevent that, rather than necessarily yeah. the scale of the infection
0: itself. Miranda, will this affect agricultural transfer from the United States to China, like to be direct soybeans from the United States to China? Does any of that get gummed up so far?
5: Well, I think no. I think that 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 may have issues but i think it points to an even more interesting one because one of one of the one of the things which is um a big factor i mean one of the issues this year was going to be the you know the pig price increases because of the swine fever. That's basically a food safety issue. And then now you've got this, which is obviously coming from from wild, you know, supposedly coming from wild animals. And you've got this whole supply chain, food distribution, food safety, all of that different aspect. And suddenly China's going to have to take quite dramatic action in order to do that and make that investment. And to be honest, that's where some of the most interesting, you know, if you're you're thinking about where the upsides from this can come, um, then it's in that kind of, you know, the chain distribution and the food safety and all the sort of you know the food manufacturers who could actually then Uh, start benefiting from this because that's where they're gonna have to address a lot of the issues that have got us into this place in the first place.
0: Miranda, thank you so much. Miranda Carr with Hightong International this morning. This is a joy. We haven't talked to Mickey Levy at some length here in a while and it's important to do that now. He's with uh, Barenberg Bank, but that barely describes his contribution to thinking about what central banks do. He's associated with the Shadow Open Market Committee. I'm not gonna go into it all because of time, but the answer is back 30, 40, 50 years as a group concerned about flow dynamics and stock dynamics within the central bank and worried about rising uh, prices. Dr. Levy, thank you so much for being with us today. There's this perennial call for inflation. Vice Chairman Clarida said to Bloomberg a few days ago, he sees us nearing a two-ish inflation. Have we given up on the inflation watch? Is there inflation out there to worry about? A little bit, Tom,
6: but not really. I mean, nominal GDP growth, that is current dollar spending in the economy, Is growing only modestly, so businesses really don't have much pricing power. Um, It's really interesting and perplexing that the Fed is, you know, still insistent that inflation goes up to two percent. The economy is really benefiting with the lower inflation. In fact, if you consider what's happening emanating out of China and with the sharply lower oil prices, that's going to flow through to uh, lower energy prices, which benefits U.S consumers. So what's wrong with
0: that? I mean, what's so important here, Mickey, and, and and this goes to Javier Blas, I thought did a phenomenal job with Bloomberg Energy this morning of explaining this. All of a sudden, it's really become global, even if it's just a virus. And I don't mean to make light of the horrific damage this virus is doing. But what's the deflationary impulse you can gauge at Berenberg right now?
6: Um, not much of a deflationary impact, but Tom, what the way I view what's going on in China is it's a negative supply shock. So it's in China, um, aggregate demand is going to decline. That is, people are going to save more. They're going to spend less. They're going to spend more on things, thing they, things they think are necessary, but they're going to spend much less on discretionary spending like autos and consumer electronics and the like and and this emanates around the world then on the on the production side of things just the s- bottlenecks in supply chains and the disruptions we we really don't know the impact of this but i would firstly yeah. the economy in china was weak to start with and you know the official numbers they'll knock off a few tens from gdp but in reality they're probably facing a near term Decline in GDP, and this is going to affect the world, particularly manufacturing. And yes, in the next couple months, we'll see it in the PMIs in Europe and Japan and the U.S.
1: Mickey, I want to pick up on the oil point uh, the idea that lower oil prices on the margins will actually give a boost to U.S. consumers. I've heard both arguments, and today we did see oil prices a little bit higher in the the market. Now they're actually basically flat $51.58 traded on the NYMEX. And I'm wondering. How much of the positive boost to consumers is offset by the negative income impact in the shale patch as we see an increasing amount of pressure on what had been the fastest growing or one of the fastest growing industries in the United States? I mean, how much is this a negative for the U.S. economy in a way it hadn't been in the past?
6: Okay, you're bringing out a great point. Now that the U.S. is net energy independent, um, the, the boost to consumers, and there is going to be a significant boost as as the lower oil prices feed through to uh, retail gasoline and home heating oil prices. Um, that will be uh, partially offset by a decline in capital spending in the in in the oil patch, and so so you, this is going to take a, a chunk out of capital spending in the GDP accounts. Right. But the consumers at 70% of GDP, and, it, and it's significantly
0: positive. Well, you know, with your decades of, of perspective on inflation and standing ready to fight inflation, what does the next marginal rate cut do? I mean, we've had some experience with this recently. Are you proposing a rate cut is efficacious here, Mickey? No, absolutely not. Um
6: Look, if we think about what's been hitting the economy even before this virus, we, the decline in global trade volumes, uncertainties in Europe, um, et cetera, et cetera, all of these have nothing to do with monetary policy. And so to ease further like the ECB and, and the Fed did last year while the BOJ continues with its QE, it has no impact other, th- other than to boost asset prices, stock prices, um, Increase income and wealth inequality, or really, if you think of the channels through which monetary policy is supposed to affect the economy, this is going to have no impact. Um, and so so central banks, the, the Fed, of course, is all over this. They'll they'll sit pat here and they'll talk about the, the, the reduction in inflation that's coming. It'll be temporary. And that'll be the right move just to, just to hold still.
1: All right. So there's the reaction function of the Federal Reserve. But there's also a question of just how significant this economic shock is going to be. Just based on what you've seen, the idea that entire cities of 50 billion people have been completely shut down in China. Do you think that markets are accurately pricing in the economic shock uh, that has already happened, let alone what potentially could happen if this virus continues to cause uh, shutdowns and travel impairments. Once
6: again, a great question. We don't fully know the answer to it. You saw China overnight down 8%. I think this is a major body blow to China that is going to have a lingering impact on their economy. And, of course, their official economic data really don't you know, add up to what's happening in reality. In, in the U.S., we've had a decline in the stock market. I think what this will do is this is definitely going to – accentuate the decline in global trade, it's going to really cause bottlenecks in in global production, the PMIs, it's going to delay any any pickup. Eventually, things will bounce back. But um, we should not take so lightly the economics of this, well, because it's really going to have an impact.
0: I mean, what do your European uh, compatriots say about the ECB then? John Farrell mentioned this, you know, 20 minutes ago or so, maybe you say the Fed will wait and finesse it, they won't cut rates. What does ECB do?
6: Um, we should hope they're realistic about this, Tom. The ECB already has their policy rate at minus 50 basis points, and they're flooding their economy with liquidity. Do you, do you think further negative rates are going to help everybody through
0: Well, let's cut to the chaser, Mickey. You're helping with an important panel March 6th in honor of Marvin Goodfriend, who just tragically died at Carnegie Mellon. His great statement was the amplitude of negative rates. Do we, do we need to get braver out a good friend to Jackson Hole and imply a greater negative rate to clear the markets? I don't think so.
6: Tom, I don't think the problem here is markets. The U.S. is actually very well positioned here. Uh, the, the The U.S. consumer and housing are doing well. There's no question but that um, the production side of the economy, industrial production's declining a bit, and that's going to sh- and that's going to show up in the ISM that, that's heavily weighted toward export orders. Um, but all in all, the U.S. economy is actually moving along the path that the Fed had predicted and moving along potential growth. Yeah. So the Fed should just be sitting here and keep in mind the federal funds rate is zero in inflation-adjusted terms, and there's more than enough liquidity in the market. So so through all this angst, uh, we have to yeah. hope that the Fed, you know, takes an even keel and says, these are temporary impacts, even if they
0: last a couple of right. quarters. Very cool. Mickey Levy, thank you so much with Baron Burbank. That's great to have John writing in the previous audience, Dr. Levy here. To Very cool. Some really different uh, perspectives. now begin without question our interview of the day, even of the week on oil. He is Edward Morse. He's at Citigroup. A careful read of his accomplishments is uh, most interesting, including his work in politics at Princeton University and, of course, running all of commodity research for various houses and now ensconced, uh, again, at Citigroup. Edward Morse, wonderful to have you on today. Can you calibrate the decline in demand for oil in China?
7: Well, I think we can cal- calibrate it, uh, to date. The issue is calibrating going forward. We, we actually think that China's hitting a, uh, a, right now a loss of about 4 million barrels a day of oil demand. A lot of this is in the transportation sector. Uh, you know, they basically shut down, uh, at least half of their, uh, civil aviation. Uh, there are international repercussions of that, uh, freight and passenger uh use has, has shut down and yeah it's a very large number as i said around four million barrels a day of uh, of an 11 million barrel a day system and there are ripple effects of that going on and i'd say tom that the the uh it looks like the downside risk to this is much greater than the upside we don't really see a shape well. recovery Anytime
0: in the future. As we do, we measure our global strategic strategists in oil by what they do day to day. It's a joke. But Ed Morris, you absolutely nailed in the fear over Tehran and Baghdad the idea of a market structured for a weaker oil price. Can you amend the Morris call there even lower? Can you put a, a greater weight to the downside on oil with what we've seen in the last two weeks?
7: Sure, we can, we can put a weight on it. The question is how long will it last? So, uh, you know, we, we have downgraded our, uh, outlook for Q2 significantly. Q1 and Q2, we don't see oil getting much out of a $50 range, but the fact that we have a $50 price on Q2 for Brent tells you that we think it's going to be in a $40 range, a good deal at that period of time. And yes, there is downside to that. Uh, the downside comes from I'd say three major factors. One is the amount of inventory that we think is possibly going to be built that could weigh heavily on markets. A second is what the real response of uh, OPEC-plus countries will be. They're meeting in Vienna at a technical level tomorrow and the next day. They uh, are considering a range of options from doing nothing to taking a million barrels a day out of the market. Again, they're thinking of doing it for three months or for a year, and there's uh, no agreement yet that has come out. And uh, it's not clear which way things will go. We don't know whether this is going to be something that they're going to recommend ministers to get together for, to accomplish by March 1, or they're going to wait for the March meeting. And that brings up the third factor, namely to the degree that they postpone a decision until their March regularly scheduled OPEC meeting or already scheduled meeting, then speculators will get at work in this. The speculative community has moved from a neutral to a shortest position, but they have a further way to go. I mean, I uh, I think combined, and we know that combined managed money in Brent and WTI is currently long by a factor of two to one. That, by the way, may sound long, but it's not. Uh, if, if it were 18 to one, as it was a year and a half ago, that would be long, mm. But we we have had an experience in the not so distant past, past in which uh, market uh, forces, managed money in particular, were actually short Brent, and that's when we had Brent prices going to thirty and WTI prices going to the mid twenty. So, you know, there's there's some way to go, and and what the actors of the market do will really dramatically impact how speculative flows work.
3: So, Ed, that, that kind of goes to where I wanted to go, which is, you know, OPEC, OPEC Plus. Do you think they will wait to March? It seems like we're in a scenario here or as you're painting and we've heard from some others, that the downside is pretty substantial here. Do you think they would uh, choose to act sooner?
7: Uh, I think now that we see prices continuing to fall every day, that that pushes them toward a sooner meeting rather than a later meeting. We know from official statements that have been made that the Saudis would like to cut Dow and they'd like to cut a million barrels a day out of the market if that's possible. That's a a level that strikes me as not doable uh, yet. Um, So uh, the likelihood is that they're going to focus on a half a million barrel a day cut and to do it sooner rather than later. And if they don't, I think there'll be fallout. I think the major obstacles at work are really on the Russian side. Uh, I don't think they're at work on the, the GCC side. I think that uh, uh, even without a full-fledged government uh, in Iraq, they could uh, actually pull off an agreement uh, from the uh, countries in OPEC that have the capacity not to not to deplete production because of natural forces, but to make a decision to reduce uh, uh, production from a targeted level. Um, I, I think the Russian situation has always been complicated, uh, it's made more complicated by uh, a look at uh, where they might fear that they may lose market share. I wouldn't be surprised if the Kremlin now is looking at uh, uh, where Russian oil goes to in China, how much of it is by pipeline, how much of it would be a real market share loss if they uh, drop production. So uh, the decision in Moscow is clearly going to be a political one. The supreme leader there, uh, the president of the country is going to weigh in on it. He's going to, you know, make the ultimate decision. But there are obstacles at work in, in that decision.
3: Ed, how about the uh, American producers? The shale uh, phenomena over the last uh, couple of decades has really changed global market dynamics. Where are the American shale producers right now in terms of supply? Given your, uh, you know, kind of a very a cautious demand outlook.
7: Sure. Well, you know, we, this is an interesting period of time because we're seeing final results from last year, uh, and uh, we're going to have guidance reporting from the companies. Um, we know that from the perspective of some OPEC countries, the uh, whether it's wishful thinking or analytical is not clear, but they think that there's going to be a significant slide in U.S. production. They're very optimistic about that because of all of the concerns that they've heard raised about uh, about cash flow uh, problems that have been encountered by U.S. companies. But our judgment uh, is a little bit different. We have penciled in a 1.1 million barrel a day increase for U.S. liquids production. That includes uh, around 175,000 barrels a day of increased production in deep water. It could be a higher number than that. We have almost 300,000 barrels a day of natural gas liquids. Uh, and that comes out of the gas pool not out of the oil pool, uh, per se, and then we look at uh, the U.S. shale uh, market participants, and they've changed. We now have 15% of drilling taking place by major companies like uh, the four big majors, Exxon, mm-hmm. uh, Chevron, Shell, and BP. Uh, they are almost certainly going to be growing their drilling activity over the course of the year. They're impervious to whatever the current price is. they will They've got guidance that are based, is based on integrated projects of oil, gas, petrochemicals, and they're going to grow. They're not going to shut down. A whole bunch of the um, independent large-cap uh, companies yeah. that are publicly traded are in very good shape. They're going to be increasing in all their drilling activity. Um, the private equity companies uh, and the uh, private companies that are family-owned Forty-five percent of the right. drilling in the United States—that's a very big number. Forty-five percent. Um, we think they're pretty well hedged out. Uh, and you know, if we look at right. uh, at the weekly rig count for the last ten weeks, the average number is up by uh, for uh, you know almost a half a rig a week. It means that the drop in drilling has really stabilized. Has stabilized really right. since the beginning of of December, if not the middle of November. Um, and uh, at that level, production grows in the U.S., and we think those who think it's going to be at the three or 400,000 barrel a day level are going to be proven wrong. On the other hand, if we get lower prices and significantly lower prices, we think uh, our 1.1 million barrel a day number could be shaved off by a couple hundred thousand barrels a day, but not by more than that. And that means that demand and supply... Well-
0: We'll still be out. We're thrilled to bring you this morning. It'll be out on our podcast. Edward Morris of Citigroup. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.